The reading for the day comes from Exodus 32, 1 through 7. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us. Who shall go before us? As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off your gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah, my pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. We're in this series called Pack Light, where we're talking, uh, using the Exodus story, about what it means to prepare for a future that's unknown, coming from a past full of wounds and pain and oppression. We're looking to the Israelites to see uh, what choices they made, good and bad, about how to move into the future that God had promised them, and what that means for us, coming from places of pain and oppression, moving toward the promised land, but needing to get beyond the Red Sea, escape Pharaoh's army, wander through the desert, and not recommit the sins of those who oppressed us. It's a lot. It's a lot to take on. And so as we prepare ourselves for what is to come, we want to think critically about what we are packing with us in our baggage. We want to pack light and make sure that in addition to bringing the essentials with us, we unpack and leave behind those things which don't serve us, the things that could bring us harm in the days to come. Today we want to talk about idols, unpacking our idols. And we have a really powerful story about how the Israelites, the ones who came before us, God's chosen people, did this really, really wrong. You see, the Israelites had been in captivity in Egypt for generations, had been suffering, had been crying out to their God, the God who remembers. And God remembers God's people and creates a plan, recruits Moses and other amazing leadership, the, the midwives of Egypt, the um, women in the community, Miriam, Aaron, all of these folks. God brings them all together to confront Pharaoh. God brings miracle through the plagues. God brings uh, passion and leadership through Moses. God brings a way where there seems to be no way out. And these miracles are defining for the people. And in fact, one of those miracles, the miracle of Passover, the 10th plague and the way that the Israelites were spared, is remembered every year, even to now, millennia later. The memories of these miracles sustain us 
And so these miraculous events pave the way for the escape from captivity, the movement out of Egypt and out of oppression. That road is bumpy because as soon as they get out the door, Pharaoh changes his mind and sends the army after them. And so they approach the Red Sea and they feel again against a wall, a wall of water, this this barrier to freedom. And they are trapped between the water and the army. And God comes through again. God sends this miracle, allows Moses to part the Red Sea, holds the water back for them to have safe passage through to move into freedom. And as the army pursues them with death and vengeance, the waters collapse. They keep the army away from the people. And the forces of evil are literally drowned in that process. And so they find themselves in the desert, but it is not the promised land yet. And they wander and they wander, and it is a difficult journey. And they come to a time where they approach Mount Sinai, And God invites Moses up. God invites Moses up to prepare, to fast, to pray, and to receive instruction from God. They've come so far. They've been through so much. God with them every step of the way, miracle after miracle, promise fulfilled over and over again. And so Moses goes up, and he's up there for a few weeks. And he's praying and fasting and getting the Ten Commandments from God, these these instructions that will shape the life of this community and communities to come for thousands of years. And so during those 40 days, the Israelites patiently wait at the bottom of this mountain, remembering their God who is with them and eagerly awaiting God's next plan. And that's the end of that story. Just kidding! Just like last week, we have a plot twist here where the Israelites forget entirely who they are, forget God, forget Moses. They literally say, we don't even know what happened to that guy. As though he disappeared for years instead of like literally a couple of days. And so they say, what even happened to that guy, Aaron? What happened to Moses? And so now Aaron is in charge and and they're like, oh, Aaron... We don't know what happened to Moses, and like, we need some gods who can lead us. They have forgotten the God of all of these miracles already. Make us some gods who can lead us. What an absurd thing to say to someone. As though Aaron can conjure up God, can create something greater than himself. As though the people can construct a God who could lead them. And Aaron says, sure, gather up all of the gold you have, all the rings in your ears, all the rings uh, on your daughters and sons. Bring your gold to me, and I will make for you a god. And so they do. They collect all of these things, throw them in a knapsack. The gold is melted down and made into a bull, a golden calf. And they begin to worship this statue, this idol that they have just chosen to make. And they say to this calf, they say of this calf to one another, these are your gods that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now you may be thinking that these people are stupid. 
And obviously, they made these gods. They made this calf. They know that, right? How could they forget their actual God who made all of these miracles happen, who has been with them, who they've been uh, separated from their leader who connects them to God for like five minutes? How, how forgetful can these people be? How silly can they be to create something themselves and then call that God and then erase their own history and say, oh, this golden calf that we made five minutes ago is the one that got us out of captivity. But I think that this story is hyperbole for us to realize how foolish our own human patterns actually are. And I know that it seems foolish and flimsy of a story, unbelievable, incredible, that a people could do this. But if it feels that way to you, I want you to buckle in because we are about to examine the logs in our own eyes and this calf is going to start looking a whole lot like a speck. So let's back up and talk about what idols are. Idols are a way to rewrite history. Idols are about forgetting what actually got you where you are. It's about putting credit in all the wrong places, hope in all the wrong places. It is lies we tell ourselves about how we got here and how we can get where we want to go next. And we do this for a number of reasons. We do this because we feel disconnected from the God who actually brought us to where we are. We do this because we forget the people that God has sent to lead us, to accompany us, to, to befriend us along the way. And we forget their role in what got us here. And we do this so that we can have some very flimsy, very shallow, very obviously false sense of control over the future because we made the gods we serve and we can just make new ones. Our culture has many, many idols. We have these very obvious patterns of forgetting our reality and our history, rewriting the past to give credit to all the wrong things. You may know some of these idols by the names capitalism, patriarchy, white supremacy. And we don't often talk about them as idols, but these systems of structural sin are, are mechanisms of forgetting, are mechanisms of rewriting history, of disorienting our reality, of putting credit in the wrong place. I saw a meme recently that talked about how the only time white folks have done the majority of the work and taken none of the credit is with acts of terrorism. And this meme is making light of white supremacy culture, this idol that does none of the work and takes the credit. White supremacy is an idolatry culture in, in the United States, certainly, and across the globe. And we see this in literal ways of rewriting history. So I want to talk really briefly about the carbon filament inside light bulbs. The person who invented the carbon filament inside light bulbs was a black man named Louis Latimer. Now, Edison widely gets credit for inventing the light bulb all the time. But recently, this past fall, on the campaign trail, actually in Kenosha, Biden made a claim when speaking with Jacob Blake, saying, quote, 
a black man invented the light bulb, not a white guy named Edison. Now, of course, because this is on the campaign trail and we want to fact check and we want to understand things, PolitiFact wrote a whole article on this, taking it on, examining history, uncovering that there were, in fact, of course, a lot of people whose work combined to make electric lighting possible, and that Edison was a notable contributor, and so was Louis Latimer. They go on to acknowledge that the filament that Latimer, the black man, the black inventor and scientist, and brilliant thinker, the filament that Latimer invented and patented was critical to making the widespread use of electric light possible that we wouldn't have modern electric lighting without Latimer's contribution. Their official ruling on the factuality of Biden's statement that a black man invented the light bulb, mostly false. Their argument was essentially that a team effort created the light bulb and that Latimer and Edison both meaningfully contributed. Now imagine if Biden had made a comment about Edison inventing the light bulb, there would be no PolitiFact article. There would be no fact-checking on that, no clarifying that it was a team effort with other critical contributors, notably including Louis Latimer. This is the idol of white supremacy at work in our culture. It favors a false god of whiteness. It erases history. And so even though you can find this history, and I did very easily to fact-check my own sermons, which I do, when I first Googled who invented the light bulb, this is what came up. I don't see Lewis Latimer in these pictures, do you? Even though that history is verifiable, Lewis Latimer somehow disappears. Now, in order to fight back, we have to remember where we came from and who got us here. This is why whenever you go to places that have posters on the walls highlighting the role of black people or of non-black people of color in history, inventors or innovators, thinkers who have contributed to our modern um, inventions and the ways that we live, this is actually holy work of fighting idolatrous white supremacy. It is a remembering, a collective storytelling that reorients us to our reality and disallows the idol of white supremacy from rewriting and erasing where we've come from. And we long to see this in classrooms and on media, but we should see it in church. And there is a holy practice of churches posting these images and memories and stories up on the walls to remember where we've come from, to fight back against those idols. Because the greatest tool for liberating us from idols and false gods is collective memory and storytelling. This is true with other idols as well. Patriarchy, capitalism, the modern American myth of individualism over communalism, this this holding up of individual achievers, of upward mobility, of the ability that one person has to be so special that they don't need anyone else, they didn't rely on anyone else, they pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. This has become such a common trope in our culture, bootstrapping, 
that we forget to actually stop and think about the literal physics of it, that you cannot pull yourself up by your own shoes. Like, that's not, I just, just, just for a minute, just like, just think about it. Look down at your own feet. Think about how you could physically raise your own body just by pulling on your shoes. It is not physically possible. It is flimsy and laughable. It is an idol. And when we look closely enough at it, it reveals itself to be wholly stupid. But the problem with idols is that we don't look at them that closely. That we use them, in fact, not to look closely at our reality, to divert our attention, to help us forget what is actually true, what is actually needed, and to focus our energy in the wrong place. Sometimes our idols are these myths, these cultural myths that we hold, but sometimes they're more specific. They're individuals. We idolize individuals. And so, speaking of Joe Biden, there is a lot of energy in this past week or so about how Biden has this, like, savior energy. I think it began with a celebration of the end of the Trump era and a hope that a, a new change in power could bring a different, a different energy, a different era to our country. But there is a difference between celebrating the end of, uh, of something cruel and placing all of our hopes on another individual to save us. And in fact, we keep forgetting why the current president is doing anything he's doing at all, which, if you study history, even our recent history, is pressure from social movements. There was an article this week um, in the leftist magazine Jacobin entitled, If Biden Moves Left, You Can Thank the Left. Now that seems really simple. If Biden moves left, you can thank the left. But the reason that we have to remind ourselves that is because it is so easy for us to collectively forget that the thing that got us some of these executive orders that came this week was not Biden's good heart, was not Biden's good ideas. It was the pressure of the people all year long and for generations. It is the Black Lives Matter movement. It is the immigration rights movement. It is this body of God's people pressing on the systems of power that move those power brokers to do the will of the people. And yet, it is so much easier if we can just count on Biden, our golden calf Biden, to just do the right thing so that we don't have to put all that energy into pushing. But when we do that, when we idolize any one person, especially political figures, they will always let us down. And if we think about it too long, we will feel how flimsy of an idea that is. This one man is not going to save us. And the only time he ever does us any favors is when we, the people, push and fight and advocate when the social movements, the social pressure becomes so great that we can, we can leverage our power for freedom. But this is the collective memory that we must hold on to, the power of movements, the power of resistance, the power of the people. And the mythology of our culture really wants us to forget 
to say, oh no, we know how power works. It's these really nice, benevolent leaders who hold all of the power and leverage it mostly for us. Yeah, probably not at all for themselves or their rich donors or systems of capitalism and white supremacy and patriarchy. And again, if we, if we look closely at that, it, it all falls apart. And we remember that actually the way that we get to sanctification, which is really what we're talking about here, the, the making holy of the world is through the people of God and through the collective effort of the people of God. In order to fight back against idolatry, we must reorient ourselves to reality, remember our history. And idolatry is when we put hope in something shallow, something insufficient. It's disorienting. It erases history. But we like it, we crave it, because they are things, these idols, that we make and we control. And we have at least an illusion of control over in ways that we can't actually control God. There are ways that we do this in our everyday lives. Idols are often held collectively, but they are worshipped by individuals. And even as we fight against cultures of white supremacy and capitalism and patriarchy and so on, we have patterns of idol worship in our day-in, day-out lives. The lies that we tell ourselves that give us hope or worth. The things we know won't serve us, but we serve anyway. And I'd like to talk through four idols that are common among us. Four idols that we struggle with on a day-in, day-out basis. And I want you to see if you identify with any of these idols, if any of these lies have caught up your heart, have swept you up in their falsehoods. Idol number one, and I, and I just want to like put it out here, um, I have fallen victim to all of these idols multiple times over and over. These are all things that like I have to work on and reorient myself away from constantly. So none of us are alone in needing to to repeatedly unpack these idols and say, you're not serving me, get out of here. But it is, it is spiritual work. All right, idol number one, productivity. Now this is something that comes out of that, that shared myth of, of the false god of capitalism. But it shows up differently in different kinds of communities. Functionally, this is how hard am I working? Now that may be how many hours am I putting in at my job, it could also be how, uh, how much am I breaking my own back for the people that I love? How self-sacrificing am I? It may be about proving oneself. How hard am I working and how are other people, do other people believe I'm working hard enough? Do other people believe I'm working as hard as they are? Can I prove myself and my commitment? Can I prove how much I care about our shared values by just working harder? Can I excise my guilt not by submitting myself to God and realizing that we are all flawed and allowing the love of God to wash over me, but, but actually just by working harder. This actually is so common, including among religious people, that it has a fancy religious name. It's called works righteousness. It is a pattern that we get into thinking that we can earn the love of God, the love of others, the love of ourselves through work 
through hard work and good deeds. If we can just be a good enough person, we can prove to ourselves and others and God that we are good enough. This is a lie. It is an idol. It is a falsehood, and it takes from us. It takes from us our rest. It takes from us our wholeness. It takes and it takes and it takes and it never gives back because that is what idols do. The idol of productivity. How many of us worship at that golden calf? Idol number two, the approval of others. So many of us want not only to be loved, but to be liked. So many of us are willing to bend ourselves, to look a certain way, to act a certain way, to talk a certain way in order to receive recognition and acceptance, validation from other people. Some of us are willing to kind of combine idol one and two to break our backs so that we are appreciated by others. Because maybe if others love us for what we do for them, if others appreciate us so much, if we are essential to the lives of others and they approve of us and they want us in their life, maybe then we'll be okay. Maybe then that hole inside of us that tells us we're not good enough will go away. Maybe if someone else tells me I'm good enough, I'll finally believe them. That never really works, not for long. This idol encourages us to turn away from the God who says we are good enough as we are, to turn away from the God who says we don't need anyone's approval because we are inherently good, to forget that the goodness God made in us is all we need, and instead to try and again earn that, find that approval, that validation externally from other people. And it is a lie, and it never, and never fills that place in us that needs to be held together with the consistent love of God. Idol number three, romantic relationships. Now, romantic and sexual relationships can be good and holy and beautiful, and when we turn to romantic love for self-affirmation, it is another way of externalizing something that should be intrinsic to us. We tell ourselves, this is how I will be not alone. And we know that's a lie because how many people in romantic relationships feel utterly alone sometimes? But it is a way of papering over our aloneness. It's a superficial way of pretending that we don't feel alone, of ignoring our aloneness, and rather than facing it, contemplating it, meditating on it, bringing it to God, we say, oh no, I will get a new partner or not leave the partner I have or rely on the partner that I do love to give me a sense of identity, to give me a sense of completeness. I will never find myself alone if I can just have the right person with me to love me. And we end up submitting ourselves to relationships, hoping to be made complete hoping to feel finally okay because I have a partner or partners, seeking out that external love. But it is a falsehood, an emptiness, because the completeness of love comes from God from within us. And that is what allows us to fully submit in joy and love to romantic relationship. But when we reduce our romantic relationships to validation, 
to security, to identity. And we, we take parts of ourselves and give them away and try and fill those holes with a veneer, a picture of romantic love. This is an idol. Idol number four, political purity culture. Now, we talk about purity culture sometimes at Zao, and for a lot of us, purity culture is about sexuality. It's the wounds that were, that were um, given to us by outside communities that wanted to control our bodies, to tell us exactly what was right and wrong, to dictate for us our own process, to not let us explore or fumble or make mistakes. And we recreate that purity culture in our politics, in our speech, in our analysis of oppression. This, I hate to say it, is the cancel culture that folks on the right are so worked up about. But they're identifying a real sickness here that says that there is no room for mistakes, that says that there is no space to learn, that says that you are superior when you can point out how messed up somebody else is, that you prove your worth by being better than someone else, and that if anyone makes a mistake, they are cast out. This idol imagines all of us emerging. This is the, the image that always comes to mind is like Athena emerging, fully formed as an adult from the forehead of Zeus. If that is a weird reference to Greek mythology that you don't understand, just hang with me here. The idea is that we are not allowed to grow. We are not allowed to gestate. We are not allowed to crawl before we walk. We are not allowed to babble before we talk. We are not allowed to learn. We must emerge fully formed, no mistakes, imperfection. And like that's just, that's an erasing of every person's history. That is a demanding that we pretend that we are all exactly where we always have been and that everything we know, we have always known. And that if you don't know this yet, it's because you'll never know it, and you never did know it, and you don't deserve to be here. This is a recreating of these purity cultures in just a different setting. And it's one that erases history, erases the reality of our growing together as community. Now, we put our hope in these idols because they seem like things that we can strive for, things that we can control. Maybe if I feel empty inside and it is too frightening to turn and face that with the love of God and to heal, maybe I can just be more productive. I can just work a little harder. I can just earn my way into healing. Or maybe I can just get other people to remind me that I'm good and I will do whatever it takes to people please, to please them so that they can never stop telling me that I'm probably good enough even though I don't believe them. Or maybe if I just get the right relationship, if someone is in love with me, if I can get those ooh, those pictures on Facebook that look so cute and get all those likes, like that, that will be the thing that sets me free, that makes me feel whole. Or maybe if I can just be politically pure, if I can get all the right answers, if everyone can know just how woke I am, then I won't feel this emptiness anymore. These are lies. These are lies. These are our golden calves. Now we create 
these idols out of the ordinary parts of our lives, the gold we wear as ornaments and jewelry. Idols are not real, but we build them out of the ordinary parts of our lives so that we can have a sense of control. And what do we need to do with idols? How do we turn from idol worship to worshiping the love of God, to worshiping the liberating God, to worshiping the God of the universe who is so much bigger, so much more powerful than any of the lies that we tell ourselves? We have to reorient ourselves to reality and to history. And we have to tell the stories that remind us who we are. So with idol one, productivity, what are the lies that you tell yourself about how productivity or working hard or proving yourself are where you got today? Remember a time when you rested. Remember a time when you took care of yourself. Remember a time when you relied on others, allowed yourself to be supported. In these memories, in this storytelling, the twin idols of American capitalism and individualism start to crumble. You reorient yourself to reality, your history. You remember that you were made to rest, that God created the Sabbath day on purpose for you. You remember that you are made to be part of community, that you are made to be supported by others. Your hard work matters and has produced great things. But don't take the gold rings of your hard work and melt them down and create a false god that you think you can control by just working harder. Remember the god who made you to be communal, to rest, to collaborate. Relinquish your idol and remember God and who God made you to be. We could do this with all of our idols. With idol two, the approval of others. Remember when someone didn't like you and it was fine. Remember when you posted something on Facebook and nobody liked it and you survived. Remember a time you did something that disappointed someone but you didn't lose the relationship. Remind yourself that you didn't actually get love because of people-pleasing. Remind yourself how you have received love. Remind yourself that being yourself is what gets you love, that God made you lovable, that infused within your very being is the love of God, and that nothing you do to please or displease anyone can change that unconditional, fundamental, lovable quality about who you are because that's who God made when God made you. Remind yourself that when you turn approval of others into an idol, you pretend that you can control love. You try to earn it or manipulate it. Remind yourself that love is something you show up to, that you receive unendingly from God, and that you build in relationships by being genuine and yourself not pretending to be someone you think is more likable. Idol three, romantic relationships. Remember that you have worth when you are single. Remember that you have love and joy in your life with or without a romantic partner. If you've been through a breakup, 
Remember that you made it to the other side of that, and perhaps you became more yourself through that process. Remember that you are a whole person, with or without someone else, and that romantic love does not complete you, because God made you complete from the very beginning. And finally, idol four, political purity culture. Remember a time you were wrong about something, and the world didn't end. Instead, you learned and grow, grew. When you make an idol out of purity, when we make idols out of purity, we forget that what got us where we are is not perfection, but learning, teaching one another, supporting one another's growth. And this is, in fact, the heart of spiritual community. We come together to humble ourselves and to grow. And that requires grace that the idol of political purity just has no space for. When we unpack our idols, we have to tell stories of what sustains us, of the love of God, of the core of ourselves. And we have to do that in a broad community that holds grace. This is what it means to be on the spiritual path, to tell the stories to one another. And so that when Moses disappears for a few minutes, we don't all lose our, our memory together and start worshiping false gods out of our own creation. We are a people who forget. But God is a God who remembers. And though Moses was on that mountain just a couple of days, it is that sense of disconnection that actually drives us most quickly to idol worship. When we forget, and we remember through relationship, through telling the stories, through reminding one another with gentleness and encouragement. A final word of encouragement for today. When Moses was up there, the people forgetting, saying, what even happened to that guy? Moses was up there with God, preparing to receive new instructions, preparing to enter into a new era, preparing for God's plan for God's people. And so while the people were at the base of the mountain, thinking that God had forgotten them, forgetting God altogether, saying, we need gods who are going to tell us the way and teach us how to go, their impatience was disconnecting them from the fact that their God was doing exactly what they needed and what they desired. That God was showing them the way. They just needed a little bit of faith and a little bit of patience and a little bit of memory. And so when you are feeling disconnected from God, when you find yourself putting faith in idols instead of the living God who loves you and made you, know that it is the community that will bring you back that will help you remember that God is doing incredible things, that God is answering your prayers, that God is leading you into a new way towards the promised land, and that it may not happen the way you want or that you would control. But those false idols won't do it that way either because they actually have no power. But the God of the universe is at work for you in every and all moments, working good for those that love God, those that are striving to remember, even though we mostly forget. God is at work for us. And our job together is to remember. Will you pray with me? 
God, help us hold your memory, hold your hope and your promise at the forefront of our community. God, when we forget, when we put our faith in the wrong places, when we construct idols, help us to teach one another your stories, your promise. Help us to remember the miracles you have brought into our lives. Help us to remember how we got where we are now and what truly serves us, which is your love. Help us then to serve your love rather than the falsehoods of our world. In your name we pray. Amen.